this Thursday, many families and friends will be gathering around a table, enjoying some food to celebrate. And amazingly, what remains to be seems to be one of the most both popular and I would say almost unspoiled <laughs> or uncommercialized uh, holidays in America, Thanksgiving. Sure, some would have us believe that Christmas comes right after Halloween. And maybe for some families that's really how it is. But as for my family, at least growing up and now, we, we celebrated it. <laughs> it was the day after Thanksgiving. That is when, you know, you could start decorating for Christmas or so forth. However, Christy and I have confessed to one another we've been sneaking in Christmas songs here and there. Um, you know, even though every now and then in a few years I would enjoy Thanksgiving cartoon specials, uh, but nobody could seem to capture the magic of the holiday itself in those specials the way that uh, Christmas movies maybe might every now and then. But one of the only things that captured my imagination along with the Thanksgiving holiday is the story of the Mayflower Pilgrims, a bunch of Christians who boarded a boat and sailed the Atlantic and planted a colony in the New England area. And I'm borrowing from that ethos while examining a scripture that seemed near and dear, or at least brought up in some of the writings around that event, and that is Hebrews 11, uh, 13 through 16. Last week we covered one verse while we looked at the faith of strangers and pilgrims. The author of Hebrews talked about the Old Testament patriarchs and how they had faithful ends because they had faithful vision and they were faithful confessors to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In other words, earth was foreign to them and they saw themselves as merely sojourners and passers-by of earth at large. Now we get to examine where they are headed as they pass the earth by. What is their homeland? If only we had been singing hymns that would prepare our minds. <laughs> um, but let us direct our attention to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read all of verses 13 through 16, but I'm since we covered verse 13 last week, I'm just going to cover the remainder this week. And just another reminder, even though I usually preach out of the ESV, I've chosen the New King James both last week and this week, so that's what we'll be using again today. If you're able to, I invite you to stand uh, for the honor of hearing the Lord's Word, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, which reads, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, um, we come before a weighty thing, your word. We trust that these were written down with complete inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the author was 
perhaps writing a letter to the believers, but in your mind you knew that these words would be reserved for us, preserved for us. And um, we pray that you would give us the open mind and the open eyes and heart and ears to hear your word, that we would respond obediently, that we would yield to you. We pray that for whatever is in our minds and hearts that might be hindering us from enjoying you fully, we pray that those would be removed today. Uh, We pray that everybody would hear your voice and not mine. Uh, We ask and pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when it comes to the Mayflower pilgrims, there has to have been, in fact, there, there was a little bit of tension there for many of the passengers. Of the original congregation, many of, of which who had claimed that the prospect of, of leaving England and then they were in Holland, um, that where they had been exiles from England prior to coming here, many of the congregation had claimed that the prospect of going to the new world was a good one. But if I remember right, at the end of the day, not only did a bunch of uh, congregants back out, but then they had two boats that set off, and one of them had some problems, and so they lost more of their congregation. And I want to say, after all was said and done, there was only 102 passengers on board, and only half of them were from the Christian congregation, so about 50 or so of the original Christian congregation who wanted to come over. The other half were merchants and opportunists uh, because there's tension. I think all of us desire a better place to be. (laughs) Uh, Nobody likes injustice. Many of us get fed up with the same garbage we might see day in and day out. We like the fact that maybe those evil people rule or those folks with evil agendas are getting their set agenda done or those of bad influence are succeeding at influencing our young. But when the prospect of leaving it all, in fact, for the Mayflower pilgrims, leaving civilized society altogether and an opportunity to start from scratch arises, there is temptation to do that, but there's also the great cost we think about. For Abram, there was great cost to leave everything he's ever known, to leave an entire culture. We read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Can you emotionally go there for a minute? Think about that. The author of Genesis, presumably Moses, gives us no build up. We don't know if the Lord had been talking to Abram for years or a small season. The way it's written, especially verse 4 of that same chapter, which says, so Abram departed as the Lord has spoken to him. It would seem that Abram was a rather quickly obedient person. Even so, I'm still imagining a tearful goodbye. (laughs) No matter how quick some people might want to get out of their home and, you know, leave your country, your family, your father's house. Everything you've ever known, every trapping of comfort. And in Abram's day, or especially in the Mayflower's day, there was no convenience, no sure, certain way of knowing that allies or friends would receive you where you're going. 
no familiar faces where you're going. And in Abram's tribal society, it was not a small thing to just up and leave your home as it might be in our day and age. You know, I have three siblings, a sister and her family in Kansas. I have two brothers and their families in Georgia. My parents are in Kamii, and we're all okay. And thanks to the modern convenience of air travel, video chatting and whatnot, we stay in touch, we carry on relationships. But what about in Abraham's day and age? (laughs) Or even in the Mayflower's day and age, you might as well be disowning family. No assurances of when you will see them, if you will see them. Can't remember the particulars, but I believe a a Mayflower passenger left their infant child with their grandparents when they left England and assumed or hoped that on a future passing, whether it be the the grandparents coming or the parents going back to, to getting this child to come back to the new world. What pushes people to do these sorts of feats, though? The answer is woven throughout this passage. We have four primary movements today in our text. We have homeland seekers, homeland leavers, high expectations and high commendations. Homeland seekers, homeland leavers, high expectations, high commendations. You know I went to Bible college because they all start with H. You're welcome. Um, Before we look back at verse, or before we look back at verse 14, let's jog our memory a little bit more about verse 13. Faithful ends, faithful vision, faithful confessors. Abraham died before receiving the promise. But his vision of the promise was as Hebrews 11 opens in describing what faith is, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It it was as good as real. In fact, the Bible would unashamedly say it was better than what we might call real. (laughs) Paul says that there is a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Abram's faith was a vision resting on eternal, unseen things. He was a faithful confessor, a stranger, and a pilgrim. I brought up last week this interesting statement that Jesus said of Abraham while Jesus was on the earth. He had told some Pharisees that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And I was making the point that the author of Hebrews and, and Jesus, who stated bluntly that Abraham was, was looking forward to his day, that the strangers and pilgrims that the author of Hebrews is talking about is much bigger than we might at first think. See, these folks aren't being lifted up to say, hey, follow their examples of amazing feats. But the commendations on these guys seem to be even bigger than that. Follow me about Abraham in particular. This stranger and pilgrim on the earth. Now hear that too. On the earth, the land, the stranger and pilgrim on the earth. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
wonder if you hear the tenses in that. Jesus argues scripture with the tenses. He argued to a bunch of people who denied the resurrection about how God said in the burning bush to Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus emphasized the am over the was, and he said that God is the God of the living. So there is a resurrection. So I want to argue tenses here in Hebrews. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, not sought. Follow me. Even for an Israelite, a Jew, who was on their favorite scrap of land on Canaan, they professed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, period. Even in the promised land, strangers and pilgrims. Strangers in a strange land and pilgrims, sojourners who do not intend to stay in the said strange land because their vision was bigger. Once Israel had their promised land, what happened? You ever read your Old Testaments? They couldn't keep it. <laughs> they fought those uh, around them. They, they sinned. They worshipped false gods. They broke up among themselves in a civil war leading to the northern and southern kingdoms. If this was all God had planned for them, whoop de flip and do right? Like, gee, thanks a new place to, to sin everywhere and in every way. I'm so glad it was gifted to us, God. Adam Clark, a commentator, would write, No intelligent Jew could suppose that Canaan was all the rest which God had promised to his people. And I personally would add likewise, nor would any intelligent Christian suppose that our earth, as it was, was all the rest that God had promised to his people. We're all still strangers and pilgrims. The author of Hebrews speaks of rest in chapter 4 as if it is still a future thing for us to attain. And the point that the author is leading to kind of brings it full circle in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 11, again, we hear that the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By Hebrews 12, it is seen. We, we see in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And our homeland, in fact, the Greek here in Hebrews eleven fourteen is more literally translated, our fatherland is with the Father. Jesus has said in John 14, 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you where? To myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Christ is our homeland wherein which we seek. And it comes full circle because what did Jesus say about Abraham? He rejoiced to see Israel's day, his descendants, his country that would descend and bear the namesake of his own grandson. No, Jesus says, my day. He rejoiced to see my day. How does the Bible end? What does perfection of reality look like? John says in, in Revelation, he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. I actually preached on this passage a year ago during Advent last year, whenever we went really traditional and we've talked about the second advent of Christ, not the first one. 
And I, I challenged a common interpretation here, and I pointed out that what is Jesus' bride throughout the whole New Testament? In Ephesians 5, or in Revelation 19, or 2 Corinthians 11, or John 3.29, all these passages refer to Christ as the groom with the bride, the church, the community of believers. In Revelation, a very symbolic book written in a genre of literature where symbolism is a touchstone of that genre, is stating that the bride, the church, is the New Testament. It's, it's a new Jerusalem, and that it's not the same old Jerusalem. It's not the old capital of Israel, but it's made new because it's a bride. What else does, is described about it? God is dwelling with them. Sounds like to me a bunch of strangers and pilgrims who found their homeland, <laughs> doesn't it? Earlier in Hebrews 11, same chapter, we are told, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he comes. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek a homeland? Him. God is the object of all seeking. God is the homeland of strangers and pilgrims. Christ is the object of our faith. But there is a paradox about these strangers and pilgrims seeking a homeland because they are also homeland leavers every time I say homeland I want to say security after that <laughs> but that's the tension there's this this company who, who stayed on the English shores while their friends and family left for the new world verse 15 in our primary text says and if they truly or excuse me and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return. Strangers and pilgrims had a homeland. The author makes the point that Abraham could have returned. I dare say he may have been tempted to. Just as a side note, some of you like, Kevin, I feel like your entire sermons are big side notes. <laughs> but I heard a good reminder recently that there are a lot of Christians who confuse temptation with sin itself, it seems. The Bible makes clear that these aren't the same things. We can be tempted and not sin. <laughs> we can be tempted and not sin. Jesus was tempted to worship the devil. Out of all the things I've been tempted about, I can't say that I was ever tempted to worship Satan. The Bible says Jesus was. He was tempted to forego his vow of fasting by miraculously producing food in the wilderness for himself. Temptations are allurements and thoughts on doing things that are disobedient and not right, but they are not the same thing as actually doing those said things. Now, there seems to be a fine line, but nevertheless, there is a line. And I say that because in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? A lot of the things that we've already fantasized about doing or have made decisions about in our heart and mind are as good as doing. But, I would say it's one thing to muse. If that person were just dead and gone, why, I'd be a bit happier. It's another thing to live as if they were dead, even though they aren't, or to dwell and wish that they were dead. One is musing, temptation. 
I would believe the other is believing, wishing, and I dare say maybe even acting in anger, minimizing, dehumanizing, doing everything but killing them is as good as killing them, and thus that is where one would sin. It is a fine line, but I believe that was Jesus' point on the Sermon on the Mount. Temptation is not sin. And so this means you don't need to drown in shame every time you've been tempted. You are not guilty of sin if you've been tempted and if you've overcome. Sure, there might be a slight tinge of guilt because maybe you even thought about such things. Take heart, though. The guilt is not because you've sinned. It's probably because you wish you weren't even tempted with such things to begin with, which is why we pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. But you're not guilty of sin whenever you're tempted and you face the temptation and you overcome the temptation. Now, the beginning of this side note is that Abraham may have been tempted to look back. I'm not saying it's in the Bible, but what is in the Bible are uncalled for detours to Egypt, family drama when he slept with his wife's servant Hagar, or seeing a nephew leave on bad terms, or dealing with the God who told him to commence and what would be sacrificing his promised son. I mean, all of this tension, trauma, walking out here in the middle of nowhere, believing that God has called me to this, to sacrifice. One of the realities, the only person I've seen as a, a proof of his promise, it's not worth it. <laughs> I could go back to Haran. I, we could forget about all this anticipation and family trauma and and I could chalk it up to, to going out on a failed endeavor, go back to my country, my family, my father. Now, I'm not saying that all these thoughts are evident in Scripture, but something like or some sort of playing with temptation is not too far for me to fathom about Abraham. But the Holy Spirit reveals to us it was never weighty on his mind. If they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity return. To return. Called to mind, it means to fix your thoughts upon something. You understand that dwelling or that weighty thinking? This is going to shock some of you, I, I know, but I, I live a lot up here in my mind. <laughs> I, I truly, totally get fixing my thoughts on something. There have been seasons where I have lived in somewhere else than reality, and I, I remember this from a young age too, I would be captivated by something. For me, growing up, I had different seasons of enjoying many different media franchises. When I liked Batman, I liked Batman. <laughs> I had Batman figurines, I watched Batman TV shows and movies, I played Batman with my brother. When I liked Star Wars, I liked Star Wars. I drew Star Wars pictures. I read Star Wars fiction books. I watched the movies. I watched the spinoffs. I would read up about it on the internet. So I know how to fix thoughts on something. Strangers and pilgrims of faith, they don't look back, do they? That's what George read for us. Let the dead bury their own dead. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you ever look back to an old life? An old way of living. Some people have radical testimonies. I think of our late friend John Pitts, and he described two Johns for the most part, a John that we all knew, and I think a John that none of us knew. And John would uh, tell stories here and there, and then he would usually end by saying to me, ah, oh, those were the bad old days. <laughs> Things he regretted, 
Sure, stories he could tell, sometimes things he could laugh about, but for the most part, I believe John felt the weight of what he might call empty years or wasted years. Now, I may not have a radical testimony. I was born and and raised in a Christian home, and while I may have not been 100% committed every single day, I was always a believer, I was always in church, I really never gave too much to doubting, I was more willing to face questions with listening, and then I was rather anxious. I wasn't anxious to use skepticism as an excuse to run away. But I do know the temptation here and there of wondering, how would a non-Christian life be? Where would I be if I was unredeemed? What would I be doing? And i got to say that every time I've given that much wonder, I've never been tempted much more past that. You know, some skeptics of faith say that Christianity is a crutch. And if anyone calls Christianity a crutch, it is sad that it might be for them because it's not for me. It's a whole better life. David says, You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our friend Bill Ashworth has told me wonderfully that that life with Jesus is trading in a dumpster for a well-laid-out banquet table. Like one of the best Thanksgivings, if I could add a timely illustration. (laughs) For Abraham, the temptation would have been go back to a culture of idolatry. And I think some of us hear that word idolatry a lot like we hear the word narwhal or polar bear. We know that they exist. We kind of have a picture of it, but that's about it. Idolatry of an ancient, pagan, godless world often involved child sacrifice, sexual prostitution and immorality, overindulging on food and worship of demons, to be blunt. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21, as he echoes Moses in Deuteronomy 31, 7, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, 17, that these aren't idols, these are demons. Worship of demons, dark, oppressive, abusive. What has God made you give up that you really miss? (laughs) And I say really, like think about it. Can anyone ever miss mindless hours of TV? Sure wish I could be spending my time binging on shows right now. I mean, (laughs) can anyone ever miss dirty sexual secrets? Does anyone ever wake up saying, I wish I could be blasted out of my mind by too much drugs and alcohol, because that's a good stewardship of my time. If anyone does miss these things, then I believe they've never met God. You've never met God. Because if you've truly met Christ, if you've truly caught a glimpse or a taste of God, then you've got to have high expectations. Because that's the point of our strangers and pilgrims. They have unashamedly and without apology high expectations. The beginning of verse 16 says, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. They weren't focused on the past. They didn't fix their thoughts upon the past because of their desires. The Christian life has, without apology, high expectations. The word desire in verse 16 they desire a better heavenly country it means to stretch forward to to stretch themselves out strangers and pilgrims know that there is a better world that awaits us there this is not all there is 
even when Abraham and the patriarchs made it to Canaan, as I said, the author in Jesus seems to insinuate that even then, in the boundaries of the promised land, and after Israelites inhabited the land as their own, they still looked forward to a better heavenly country. We need to know this and we need to own this. Woodland is a nice place. America has been and actually still is very fortunate. I don't know, but I'd feel a little bit silly if if other third world nations had a pray for the persecuted church of America that they observed. Because we still get to meet in freedom. Cops haven't broken down these doors to drag me off for what I've said, even though you wish they would have sometimes. (laughs) Even so, sometimes I'll just own it that I have the audacity to be a little disillusioned with America. To taste it and say, nah, I want something better. I don't like injustice. It bothers and angers me to see babies murdered in the womb. It is frustrating to hear ethics and talking points ordained by God inerrant in his word made a mockery of in the public square, if not downright opposed socially. I'm tired of seeing innocent people unjustly treated or families ripped apart by sin. I'm tired of seeing sin and the enemy overtake people that I know and love. It saddens me to see people be presented with the banquet table of God or the dumpsters of sin in the world and choose the dumpsters. And so, yes, without apology, I have the audacity to say, this place is okay, but I can see in just about every avenue where it can be approved upon and made better. So I'm going to yearn and desire for that better place. A better home. A heavenly home. The patriarchs received the promised land. Moses and Joshua received it, and it could still be better. David rose to rule it, and it could still be better. Solomon made it into its prime, but it was still less than satisfying. And so as strangers and pilgrims, Christians, were hardwired to long for, to yearn, to see King Jesus and his kingdom in its fullest expression to take place where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Where the one on the throne makes all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. Dare I say that God expects us to have these expectations. He wants us to have these longings and to work to bring about His kingdom here. There is this tension that you and I should be about his kingdom work to, to, to bring it about right here where we can. That's called peacemaking. Quakers know a little bit or talk a little bit about peace. Paul says, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The brother of Jesus, James, he says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Or as we read last week, the words of Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, which seems too appropriate to hear from the word of God to exiles on the earth. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. But as I said, there is this this tension, this paradox, that we work for God's kingdom peace, his values, but in the end it will come. See, what we try to build here, our hearts are longing for, for a reality that we've yet to, but we will receive in the end. 
a heavenly homeland. Faith looks forward as well as upward. High expectations, and God gives high commendations to such strangers and pilgrims. And we hear at the end here, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Two lines here that I want to look at closely. God is not ashamed to be called their gods, and he has prepared a city for them, that is, for strangers and pilgrims. But first, God's not ashamed to be called their God. I wonder if some of us hear the gospel this way. God begrudgingly having to deal with us, having to find some way to make up for all of our sins, wrongs, and unholiness, and disgracing Him. Well, He'll send His Son. He'll do it for us, I guess. You know, Landon's been asking his mom from time to time three little words. Jesus loves me. Landon loves that song. It's a good song to remember first thing, and it's a good song to know. Jesus loves me. He loves me. God is not ashamed to be called God of the people He saves. He doesn't begrudge us. He's not a reluctant Savior obligated to do anything. John chapter 10, Jesus says, everything He does is out of love. Love by the Father for Him and love for the Father and for us. He says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold that also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Hear that. That's where there's no obligation. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power. The ESV would say authority to lay it down, and I have power or authority to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Do you hear that? No one takes Jesus' life from him. Five chapters later in John 15, greater love, says Jesus, has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus says it's all about love. Jesus had complete authority and the complete option, the choice, the decision. You know, it would be as if someone, some punisher, stormed down your front door and they dragged in a stranger and a captive. And the captive, perhaps dressed and acting in such a way that might totally offend you and make you turn your face away, and the person holding him up says, either I kill him or if you want to give your own life, I'll kill you and he lives. See, Paul taps into this illustration in Romans 5, and he says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says he's demonstrating love there. We might be thrown by the offensive captain about to die, and we're given the choice to give our lives, but Jesus would get up from his chair, come close to the punisher and the captive, and say without blinking, and I, I love that man. Take me instead. 
No question. He loves us. He loves us by his own volition. He loves us not out of obligation. And he's not ashamed to be called our God. Hear that. Hear with me the other commendation later in Hebrews. See, here's what the author says about all of these great faithful patriarchs. And if you know your Bible, of Abraham, the guy who lied about his wife twice, slept with his wife's maid, questioned and doubted God from time to time. How about, how about Jacob, who stole his brother's birthright or was a conniving schemer? Or how about Moses, who murdered an Egyptian or complained about the complaining Israelites in the desert, had a quick temper, hit a few rocks with a few sticks? And in passing, the author of Hebrews even mentioned the judges, where if you've ever read that book, I scratch my head and go, really, these were the upright people? Not exactly the best role models. And about all of these people, the author of Hebrews says, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. Verse 38 in Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed to be called the God of the people he saved. He sees them beyond the world's worth. Yes, Jesus loves me. Don't hear me wrong. Some of you might be saying, Kevin's getting very man-centered. He's putting man on a pedestal. He's saying we're all good, perfect little. You know, God's just tickled pink about us, sees that we're all perfect. I'm not saying that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No, not one. But I am saying that God's heart towards mankind to save them was love. Period. Love. And about wrath and about what's due to sinners, does God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. He wants them to turn from their ways and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Do not rob God from his great love towards us. He loves you. And he's not ashamed to be called your God. He finds you so worthy that he says the world doesn't deserve you if you are in Christ. Lastly, stranger and pilgrim, He has prepared a city for them. Now, as my thunder was being stolen in our talk before the sermon, there is a bit of double fulfillment here because it would seem that the author of Hebrews finds this also by chapter 12, a done deal. Hebrews 11, where we're at, again, opens up with faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Chapter 12, it reveals that for the patriarchs, What wasn't hoped for or seen or wasn't revealed is now found in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. But then later in chapter 12, he says by verse 22, you have come. Do you hear the present tense in that? (laughs) Now, so says the author of Hebrews to a contemporary audience 2,000 years ago, and by extension us, now you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is the city that he has prepared for the strangers and pilgrims. As I brought up earlier, Revelation 21, 2 and 3, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. You are sitting in the homeland right now that your hearts yearn for, not because of the building, but because of the audience, the congregation you find yourselves in. But there is an already, not yet, feature to this. 
And that's okay. There's precedent for that too in the Old Testament. We've been saying Abraham was a stranger and pilgrim who didn't set foot on his homeland that he was promised. But Israel did come to fruition. Eventually the nation was realized, but it wasn't the final realization. They still wanted something better, more heavenly. So we too are recipients of a new city that will one day, in its full manifestation, be given to us. How does the song go? We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Seems to be based on a verse (laughs) 2. But we will one day, all of us, find our homeland in a more fuller realization than what we have now and no longer be strangers and pilgrims. Amen? Let's pray. Father, one of the promptings of this examination of Scripture and the thoughts of the Mayflower pilgrims leaving what was familiar to them and setting out for a new world was how easy it is to say in our time after 2020 and 2021 and all the junk that's been going on to realize that we are strangers and pilgrims that we set down roots in our world only so far as to serve your kingdom because your kingdom is what is awaiting us in the end America is going to come and go other nations have come and went we study about nations all the times in the Old Testament that are no longer but your kingdom is one that only grows and your kingdom is the one that awaits us thank you for the present reality of coming to the new Jerusalem of meeting together with brothers and sisters in Christ and experiencing in many ways the homeland that we yearn for and thank you for the reality that you are going to give us when the world ends the homeland that our hearts yearn for Father help us to rest in you Help us to invite others to this homeland. Help us to not be so tied to the world's ways and the world's voices wants us to be tied to. Help us to follow you and you alone, to serve you and you alone. And thankfully you call us to serve others. And of course that's what we pray for, that you would help us to serve others to the best of our ability empowered by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.